Thank you for tuning in to the Free Your Energy podcast. Our mission is to explore conversation, stories, ideas, and information that can help us tap into our highest vibration. Energy is our thoughts, our actions, our way of life. Let's get to this episode of the Free Your Energy podcast. Today's episode of the Free Your Energy podcast is brought to you by Organifi. Go to Organifi.com slash Sly, S-L-Y, to get 20% off your next order. Hello again, and welcome to the Free Your Energy podcast. Today, we talked with Jesse Anderson. He's currently writing a book called Refocus, Practical Guide for ADHD. If you've seen his work on Twitter and Instagram, it's all about making space for the conversation for ADHD. Let's get right to it. ADHD it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and it's a terrible name uh, for a few different reasons. Um, one, the hyperactivity in the name is really confusing to people because a lot of people, especially women, are more likely to have the inattentive presentation, which means they're not like outwardly hyperactive at all. And so a lot of people hear hyperactive in the name and think, oh, well, I can't have that. And there's some confusion where some people will say, well, maybe I have ADD, but that's actually just like an old term that's not used anymore. Even if you were told by a, like a psychologist or whatever that you have ADD, that really means you have ADHD with the inattentive presentation most likely. But the other part of the name, attention deficit, that's not really right either because it makes it sound like you're not paying enough attention to things. And what's really happening is the exact opposite. We have like an abundance of attention. So if we're like in a coffee shop having a conversation, our brain is like taking in this signal from everywhere in the room. Like it's paying attention to all the things in the room. Whereas like most people, you know, a neurotypical brain blocks out all those extra signals. It's like, that's not important. That's not important. I just need to focus on the conversation happening in front of me and maybe like one or two other important things. But with the ADHD brain, we basically, we don't have that filter. Our brain is just like, well, it sort, it sort of has, it's not quite a dopamine deficiency. The, uh, the technical aspects of it are basically your, your brain isn't absorbing dopamine the right way. So it's effectively like having a deficiency. You, your brain is just desperate to get more dopamine. It's kind of, uh, there's an ADHD coach, uh, D Dusty, who says it's kind of like having low gas mileage. Technically, we have enough dopamine, but our brain doesn't know how to use it well. So it's desperate to get more. It's always like running on empty. And so because of that, our brain is just like looking for signals that what's going to give me the most dopamine. Even, even if I know that a conversation I'm having is really important, my brain is like almost like a separate entity that's seeking out where else is there something that's going to give me more dopamine than this conversation. And that's, there's a whole lot to ADHD, but that's kind of like an overview of kind of one of the, you know, principal aspects of it. Is ADHD something that can be turned on and off? Is it something that like you grow out of? Or is it something that is like permanent? What's kind of like the state of it? Yeah, so it's basically it's permanent. They used to think that it was only in children and then you would grow out of it when you got older. And that's not, the, more and more studies are showing that that's not the case at all. Like 
you can develop coping mechanisms. And for some people, they're able to like when they get older, it's easier to deal with it. But for other people, it's the opposite. Um, sometimes people will be like in school and college, be really into sports, like say somebody's you know, going to college and they're doing really well in volleyball. They do volleyball a lot. And that kind of exercise helps with the dopamine. And then mm. they get out of college and they're not doing that activity anymore. And then suddenly their their life kind of falls apart and they have no idea why. Because it doesn't really make sense that, oh, I'm not doing volleyball anymore. So now I can't, you know, do paperwork <laughs> or, you know, whatever it is. But that's what's happening. Like that side part of your life was really kind of helping your brain to cope with the ADHD. And when that goes away, everything else just sort of falls apart. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a permanent thing. There's no like cure for ADHD. And even the idea of a cure for ADHD is kind of hard to fathom for someone that has it. For me, like the idea of taking the ADHD away feels like taking away my personality like so much of it wow. is who i am and like i really obviously i would love some of the difficulties to go away like i'm late to things all the time people with adhd really struggle with understanding time um and i would love for that to go go away so i could better understand future time and have better memory and things like that but so much of the pieces of adhd really are who i am you couldn't just take adhd away and be like hey now it's me without that part because it's just it's just part of who I am living with it, you know, for as long as I have. I like how you're, you started to mention some of the, and correct me if I'm using the wrong terminology here, but <laughs> is, is it characteristics? We, we should say like the characteristics of ADHD. You mentioned yeah, I think you could use time. characteristics. Yeah. So what are people will say what, symptoms, but yeah, there's, I don't think there's, I, I'm not too, you know, uh, whatever language you want to work, I think want to use okay. is fine. I okay. think, yeah. So what are what are some of the other uh, characteristics? You know, I know you, you had a post where you were talking about um, like spatial awareness. You were talking about like with a toddler, you know, a toddler or a young kid, you know, the, the peekaboo post you had where, <laughs> you know, and you were like at 40 years old, I don't want to do peekaboo. It's, it's so entertaining. <laughs> I love the way you write. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit more about some of the, you know, some of the descriptions? Yeah. So the part you're mentioning there is uh, object permanence, which Again, there's a lot of things with ADHD where you're describing it, and it's not technically what it is because object permanence means like when you can't see it in anymore, you think it no longer exists. And that's not exactly what's happening with ADHD, but if, if, I, if I have a really important paper, say it's like taxes I need to get done, and I put them in a drawer and I shut the drawer, I don't think they no longer exist but I'll never think about it again. It's almost as if it doesn't exist. Like when I can't see it, it like it it it, I, it basically like falls out of my brain. Like I'm never going to remember it again unless there's a specific thing to cue me. Like I see something that says do your taxes, then I might remember, "Oh, I need to go find them. I put them away somewhere." Whereas like a neurotypical brain would eventually think like, "Oh yeah, tax just kind of out of the blue. Oh, I got to do my taxes. They're in the thing." But with ADHD, you'll never, it's like, it's gone. It falls out of your brain and you can't see it. So it goes away. And so a lot of times, like people with ADHD have really messy desks. Like I've always had a desk that's been a mess. And I, it's a, it's a thing that I used to try to fix. Like I got into being like minimalism and I was like, I'm going to have this super clean desk and it, it never works. I'll spend all this time cleaning it. And then like two days later, it's back to where it was. And a big part of that is, 
I don't want to forget things. And I know if I put them away, I'll forget about them. So things start uh, to add to the desk. So I'm like, I want to remember this thing. Oh, I want, I don't want to forget this book I want to read. So that's going to stay on the desk. So I continue to see it and get reminded of it. So yeah, that object permanence uh, is a big one. Like out of sight, out of mind is 100% true for people with ADHD. Like if I, yeah, if I don't, I don't see it, I'm never going to remember it again. It makes me think about that person that, you know, they they have a, a mess, quote unquote, as we say, or they have like a pile of stuff. And then, you know, someone comes by and they're like, oh, clean that up or clean up the mess. And the person is like, no, it's not a mess. It's not a pile. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. It's exactly <laughs> in the order I needed to be in. Like, it makes me think about that person. Yeah, it's uh, organized chaos, as uh, yeah. people like to call it. Because I know where everything is in that mess over there. And like when I was, you know, when I was a kid, my mom would sometimes clean my room because my room got to be, you know, trash. That happens with every kid, but it was especially bad for me. And my mom would sometimes get so fed up, she would just come in and clean it. And I would be like horrified. I'm like, where? I don't know where to find anything anymore. Wow. Because <laughs> I can't see it out anymore. And so, like, one, not only will I be not able to find stuff, but two, I won't remember the things that I left out on purpose to remind me to do. Mm. And so it's like it's, it's like you went and took my task manager and just deleted all my tasks because mm. those objects kind of spatially in my environment are sort of a task manager for me. I'm putting things out there specifically to remind myself later to take action on them. Yeah. You use the term neurotypical twice. Can you can you give us, for those of us who've never heard that term, an introduction into what that means and what it looks like? Right, right. So neurotypical basically is like the language of saying normal is not great language because you don't want it to be like, oh, you have ADHD, so you're abnormal, you don't fit. But neurotypical is generally just a way to kind of differentiate what is sort of like that typical brain function that's different from someone that has ADHD or someone with autism or bipolar or any of those other kind of uh, mental disorders or differences, whichever language you want to use. So neurotypical is just sort of like an easy way to say, quote unquote, normal without it kind of being that negative connotation for those that are not neurotypical. So what would what is the term for a person who has ADHD? They wouldn't be neurotypical. Is there another term? Yeah, so there's a term that's becoming more popular lately called neurodiverse. Mm. And so neurodiversity is sort of embracing the idea that differences in brain aren't necessarily just disorders. And so the general idea being that, hey, people people have different types of brains and that's actually a good thing. Like our society benefits from having that diversity in, you know, in brains, just like diversity is helpful in so many different ways. Like having those different viewpoints, those different strengths is a really right. positive thing. And so it's been just sort of in the last few years that that neurodiversity movement has really sort of picked up, but it's gaining in popularity and a lot of people are really starting to rally around it, which is awesome. I'm a big supporter, big fan of it. Yeah, I like that term too. And it feels like some terms that we use, when you just listen to the term, it doesn't make any sense. Like one that I don't like is being called a minority. Like mm. that doesn't make any sense to me. Like what, like you're telling me I'm minor, minor to what? And then right. if you think about all the things that come from the consequence of calling a group of people minor, it's like, well, the, you know, we, we're not getting into race in this topic, but you know. <laughs> It, yeah. like, it doesn't make any sense. So I do like the term neurodiversity because it, it's not a term that's like saying, uh, well, you know, you're not normal or you're abnormal. It's just right. you're diverse. You're different. Yeah, um, I think it's great. And I've 
been able to kind of see that. I have a daughter who's 11 and she has ADHD and it's great being able to kind of explain it to her and talk about it in a way that it's like, hey, this is a strength and this is great that we're different. Like you don't want, we, you don't want everyone in your class to have the same type of brain. Like we want those differences and that's healthy and you can help each other grow. If you have a friend that's neurotypical, that's great because now you can have two different viewpoints on things. And so she right. really has embraced that, which is which has been uh, awesome to see as a dad. Like I'm like, yeah, she's like, she's you know preaching that word, bringing it forward, and helping her <laughs> friends know too. Right. Like she's proud to say like, yeah, I have, AD- I have ADHD, and that's great. Like it's good to have people with different types of brains. What would you say, population wise or percentage wise? Uh, people who have ADHD? What was the percentage? Right. So there's been studies and it's kind of like, there's nothing like super conclusive from what I've seen recently. I believe like estimates in the US are somewhere in the like five to eight, 8% range. So it's pretty high. Okay. Okay. But studies have also shown that like, I think it's something like 90% of adults that have ADHD are not diagnosed. Right. So it's a really big problem. Like a lot of people have ADHD and don't have the diagnosis, which makes sense because people think ADHD is one thing when it's totally this other thing. Right. So for a person who is thinking, you know, should I get diagnosed? Should I not? What's your invitation to them? You know, I know you you got diagnosed. So, like, what, what's your invitation to that person who's thinking about potentially getting a diagnosis? And how do you even go about doing it? Yeah, like, I think getting a diagnosis is great. I think it's, it's a great way. I mean, there's a few things you get from it. Like, if you want to do medication, which can be super effective, you need the diagnosis for that, obviously. And the same with, like, you can get school and workplace accommodations to help, which, which is another great thing. But mostly, I think just like getting that official diagnosis really helps helps you to accept that it's real. I know a lot of people with ADHD, I mentioned before, the kind of like self-esteem and shame issues. People will have the thought, like, I don't deserve to have ADHD. Like, mm. I don't feel like I... Like, it feels too convenient that there's this thing that exists. And because they've been beating themselves up so long that they feel like they don't... Yeah, they don't deserve that diagnosis. Um, and so getting an official one from like a psychologist or, or somebody that really knows ADHD really helps you feel like, hey, this isn't just me coming up with an excuse. This is someone that knows what they're talking about that's mm-hmm. officially given me that diagnosis. So I think it's super valuable for that. Um, unfortunately, the the myths we talked about, the people that not not knowing the reality of ADHD, a lot of those are general doctors. And I think doctors are great, but for whatever reason, ADHD, they just aren't very well informed. So I recommend if you're trying to get a diagnosis, try to get a referral to a specialist, um, some sort of psychiatrist or somebody that specializes specifically in ADHD. And sometimes it might say adult ADHD. And if you can get that that's even better. Like technically they're the same thing, but I found a specialist that says they uh, specialize in ADHD may only be used to dealing with children. So you got to kind of look and try Mm, to find someone that is familiar with working with adults that have ADHD. Now you mentioned being uh, a parent. How many, how many kids do you have? I've got three kids. So they're uh, six, eight and 11, I believe. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Congratulations. (laughs) For the parents listening who mm-hmm. may have 
children who have ADHD? Um, what are some of the behaviors that they'll be exhibiting that maybe the parent could notice? And then what are some ways that the parent could support that child who, who may have ADHD? Right. So for us, sort of the really obvious early signs that we start, started noticing in my daughter when she was probably around five or six um, was not responding to things. So it seems like like a lot of kids will not answer when you're saying their name. But it was really clear with my daughter that it was like, she's not hearing what we're saying at all. She's not just like ignoring us. And you could sort of see that she would eventually kind of snap out of it and be like, what? And have no mm. recollection of the stuff that we had said to her before that. So there's sort of that. And it can be worse for some where there's actually auditory processing disorder, which it can be common with people with ADHD. But that was sort of a big sign for us. There's kind of the stereotypical really hyperactive, uh, which tends to be more common in boys. And that does still happen, but that's definitely not the only thing that shows up. So for me, that big one was the, like seeing the auditory thing. Um, let me think, what are some other things that we noticed? Like a lot of it has to do with like transitions can be really, really difficult. So like transitioning from one activity to another, even especially if it's like the next activity is also fun. Like if, if you're trying to get like for us, we we're trying to get our daughter to stop doing one thing that was kind of fun to do another thing that was more fun. But for people with ADHD, like our brain is the whole dopamine thing. We're like so terrified of boredom that even the the prospect of like the transition, like, oh man, walking from this fun thing to that fun thing sounds really boring. And so I just <laughs> can't even, I can't even engage in that process mm -hmm. of transitioning from one thing to another. So that transition is another really big thing. Um, yeah, rebellious behavior happens a lot too. I know for me, I've always been this way where if somebody tells me I have to do something, I'm never, ever going to do that thing. <laughs> right, it, right. It could be something I was planning to do and maybe even wanted to do. But if you now told me that I have to do it, that's off my list. I'm never doing that again <laughs> because you told me that I had to do it. <laughs> and that definitely shows up. Uh, in kids right around that kind of like five to 10 range, that's they start to really get that rebellious, like, mm, you tell me to do it, I'm going to show you that I'm never going to do that. <laughs> I feel like you just called me out because <laughs> not only was that my childhood, but that's my adulthood. As soon as, as, soon as that you have to do this energy mm -hmm. comes, I'm like, oh, do I? <laughs> <laughs> right, well, yeah. Well, what's going to happen if I don't? I see that in my son too. He he, he's two, so he's he's at that Tyler age where you know he's learning his boundaries and learning his right. world around him, and he, he he has to test everything to see. So yeah. you said, Dad, don't touch this. Okay, let's let's test it. Like what happened? Uh -huh, you know? so, right. So that's that's interesting for me to uh, be on the other end of that. You know, as a dad, where I used to deliver that <laughs> to my parents, and now <laughs> right. it's, now it's coming to me. My friend, I hope you are enjoying this episode of the Free Your Energy podcast. I want to take a second to talk to you about your sleep routine and something that can help you. And one of the things that I use for my sleep routine is Organifi Gold. So what I do, I get my gold, get a cup of water, get my journal out. I write in there what was good from the day, what wasn't great, what's my focus for tomorrow. I try to write one or two affirmations just to really affirm myself. At this point, my cell phone is already turned off. And I'm sitting there doing my journaling, writing, 
decompressing, I'm breathing, I'm doing a lot of this. Really, really just letting my body calm down and I'm drinking my Organifi Gold. And the ingredients in the Organifi Gold really, really help you calm down. Turmeric, ginger, reishi, mushroom, also known as the queen of mushrooms and has been used in China and Japan to support wellness for over 2,000 years. It's said to be the secret to youth and longevity. It's a grounding mushroom and, and it's adaptogen as well. A lemon balm, turkey tail mushroom, which is another potent antioxidant that supports a healthy immune response. I drink that, I calm down, I do my meditation, and then I'm off to bed. And I really enjoy getting that nutrition in my body at the end of the night to support my sleep. My friends, if you don't have a sleep routine, try to adapt some of the things that I just said. Get Organifi Gold. It'll help you. Organifi Gold. Go to Organifi.com slash Sly, S-L-Y, to get 20% off anything on their website. Again, that's Organifi.com slash Sly. Now let's finish up this powerful episode of the Free Your Energy podcast. You put this, you had this beautiful post you wrote. You said, um, man, I had to really write this down because this one really hit me. It said, for people with ADHD, there is a learned behavior of assuming everything is your fault. Uh, and what that post was alluding to, you were talking about shame. And in my in my latest book, the very the first three chapters, we're talking about shame. And the, the book, if you don't know, is called Loving Yourself Properly. And I'm I'm trying to invite people to the deepest form of love, which is self-love, trying to take care mm -hmm. of yourself, mm -hmm. to know yourself, you know, examining your habits and, and things of that nature. And so for someone with ADHD, when they're in this shame cycle of thinking, um, everything is my fault, it's like you can't get to experience and feel love when you're trapped in shame. But on that post, you had, uh, I wrote it down, you had, you said plan an escape. Mm -hmm. I never, ever heard anybody say that. To When you're in shame, to have a plan to escape. And so could you tell us just a little bit about how we can escape shame? Yeah, um, it's, it's tough because shame, a lot of the times it, you know, it builds up from like experience and yeah, the, the like learned experience, you, you, you're, you're building like this just giant weight that's on your shoulder and then it just comes like you feel like it's gone away and then something hits you and then immediately it's all like back on your shoulder uh, and it, oh, it's, it, it's just brutal. Um, but yeah, like finding an escape plan, I think there, there's several ways you can do it. One thing I've been trying to do really recently, I, I just listened to the audiobook uh, by John Acuff called Soundtracks, which is a great book, really good book. And it's talking about how we, you know, it's, it's basically the soundtrack is that internal monologue, that voice that's kind of repeating in your head. And it's so easy for us to get into, for everyone really, to get into having that negative soundtrack that's just bringing up failures and bringing up things that will, you know, spark shame. And what he talks about in that is basically building a new soundtrack. And for me, I think in the, in the book, he says to like, try to try to turn off the negative soundtrack and replace it with something new. And I found I cannot turn it off. Like there's no turning mm. it, 
turning it off. But I can turn the volume down by trying to be louder with my new music, basically trying to drown it out. And so one of the things he says in that book is like a mantra that he kind of repeats to himself whenever something happens, like a good or bad, but like some sort of significant situation. And he just says like, everything's always working out for me. And that's something I've really been doing just for the last few months. And it's been huge because it really kind of changes your perspective. Even something negative that happens, I, I, I now it's like by habit, I, my brain automatically jumps to that. Well, everything's always working out for me. So this feels like this thing feels crappy. And saying that doesn't magically make it good. I'm not like, oh, let's, you know, turn this, you know, turn these lemons to lemonade right. or whatever. <laughs> but by having that attitude, it just sort of like helps me think, hey, I've gotten to where I am right now and things have, oh, in general, think pretty good things have worked out for me. And so even though, so even though this thing right now sucks, like I know around the corner somewhere, something equally great is going to happen. And just like repeating that has really helped. Um, another thing sort of along the lines of that is, well, people with ADHD have really terrible memory, which is funny because we also don't know that we have bad memory. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I didn't find this out until like I was diagnosed and then we were, uh, I was doing like some counseling and then, you know, I had 10 years being married without my diagnosis. So we had some work to do on figuring some stuff out in our marriage, which was great. But one of the things that happened there was me realizing that my memory was so poor because our brains just like trick us and fill in the, the gaps. And so I would think back, on something, some situation that happened. And I would, to my core, think I knew what happened, but my brain was just filling in stuff I forgot. And so once I was able to see that, it really sort of like mm. really changed things a lot of like once you, not that your brain lies to you necessarily, but it's like once you sort of accept like, hey, just because it feels like a memory doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly how it happened. And through that, I've learned that because I have a poor memory, I have a I I don't do very well remembering the positive things. Like the positive things that happen, nice things people say, I just like forget all of those. And even like good things that I do, I excuse it because I'm like, well, that was pretty easy for me. So it probably doesn't count really as a success. Um, mm. So I've started to write that down. I basically have like, I, like basically a list of things. Anytime someone says something positive about me or to me, or I do something and there's like, you know, I, I find success, I, I write it down. And that's sort of something I return to when I'm feeling that shame come up, when I'm feeling down and negative about myself, then I can look at this big list of evidence that's like, hey, all these, this, these negative voices, the negative things that you're telling yourself right now, look, here's the evidence that that isn't true. These are all these other people. Here's all these things you've done that show that that's not true that you, that your that your brain is lying to you basically it's trying to send you down this negative shame spiral and i find that that's been really helpful to kind of get me out of that that negative mindset you call it evidence of worth and i just think that is so beautiful because there's so many times where we're telling ourselves a story or we're getting reinforced from someone in our family or you know a coworker or society, whoever it is, whatever external energy it is. And it's reinforcing a story that is actually inaccurate. It's mm -hmm. like you, you can make a mistake and still be great at what you were doing, you know? And so to have this evidence where it's like, 
you know what? For 97 days in a row, I did great. You know, and this is what we do. We get to this one day where we're at the bottom, where we're feeling bad, we're feeling down. And then it's like, oh, well, everything sucks. It's like, right. does it? is, is that the real story though? It's like, what if we were to peel back from today to look at the last seven, 97 days? Like, hey, the, the, those all those days are great. Today does suck. Like, let's be honest. Today definitely sucks. This moment sucks or whatever it is. <laughs> but if we kind of had more evidence to look at things and it's like, well, yeah, this sucks, but you know what? Overall, holistically, it's actually okay. It's actually going well. I'm on the incline, you know? So right, right. I, mm-hmm. I love Everything's that always working out for me. <laughs> yeah, I love that term um, that you use, evidence of worth. And I love mm-hmm. that affirmation because you're affirming like that positive mind state from an emotional standpoint, which only supports you and encourages you. Mm-hmm. As a author, as a creator, you know, how do, as someone who has ADHD, how do you blend those things together to execute the newsletter you're doing, the book you're working on, you know, all of the content that you're creating? Because content creation in itself is stressful. I've been doing it for 10 <laughs> years, you yeah. know? So I know it can be stressful. It can be overwhelming. You can be burnt out. You know, there's so many consequences that come with it. So how do you thrive as, a H- as someone who has ADHD and as a as an entrepreneur, as a father, as a husband, how do you kind of find that intersection that works for you? Right. Yeah. I mean, so much of creative work is finding that motivation to keep going, like to keep doing stuff. And a lot of people, you know, talk about if you want to be a content creator, you need to do, you know, get up this early in the morning and you need to do this many hours a day or whatever it is, and you have to have that repeating routine. And with ADHD like our motivation works so totally different. Like it's a completely different list of things that motivate us. Um, like, so like neurotypical people are motivated by like importance, rewards and consequences. So a lot of time to keep that content creation going, they're setting up consequences for themselves or they're setting up rewards. So like, Hey, if I've done this for three weeks, this will happen or whatever it is. But with ADHD, uh, our, Motivation is totally different, but one of the prime things that motivates us is like novelty and creativity. And so I find that that's really been able to help sustain me, like because I'm always being able to create new things. And I kind of, uh, I've written before about calling it kind of like juggling chainsaws because I feel a little bit like when you have ADHD, like you get into a role and you're doing stuff, and then it just feels like, like the chaos is kind of like, positive momentum forward and so it's like you kind of keep adding stuff to like to the show (laughs) like you're juggling and things are getting a little bit chaotic but you're like i'm getting so much done this is great and you do have to worry about burnout because burnout's going to come but i think when you just accept that it's going to come it becomes easier to bounce back from and so that's what i try to do is try to set up systems so that um, was i think james clear says you know you fall to the level of your symptom uh, of your systems and so I try to create things that when I crash and burn, like wh- when that energy falls, I have something to su- sort of sustain me. And right now for me, that's sort of like, hey, if everything goes like terrible, like if I totally burn out and I feel no energy, the only thing I need to do is write my newsletter every week. Like that's my one thing is just keep that going. Like that, that's sort of like the bottom level. Like if I'm not feeling it, all I got to do is write one newsletter a week, which is not, it's just one email. 
And I specifically keep them short because they're for people with ADHD. So it's really not that much. It's only like 300 words. I can do that every week, even if I'm burnt out. And then when I'm not burnt out, when I'm feeling great, I can do a whole lot more. It's, so, it's sort of like I have... The, my content creation is done in a way where I can kind of add levels to it depending on my energy level because it's going to go up and down throughout the year. And it just I just sort of like roll with it for what is working in that time. And right now I'm in a great place. I'm writing a lot on the book, which has been going really well. And the newsletter is going well. And I've been writing, you know, I've been tweeting a lot, which is where a lot of like kind of early ideas that I'm having about ADHD things that I want to write about. I'll, I'll write them in threads and kind of share them and get feedback on Twitter. And yeah, so I'm in that kind of area where energy is high right now, which is great because I like writing a book is I've, I've never done it before this one. And it's really hard. <laughs> and I started out really strong for like three months. And then I hit a lull and I basically did nothing for like two or three months after that. I was like, I, I kept looking at it and I just couldn't get the energy to do it. But now now I'm back kind of on that high level of motivation and momentum going. And I just I wrote like you know, like 4,000 words just last week. And I'm like on a great roll right now, which is mm -hmm. uh, great. So I think it has to do with just find what, finding that lowest level commitment that you can stick to so that you don't fall off completely. And for me, that's just been the newsletter. Like if I can just keep doing the newsletter every week, that is enough that I'm okay to recoup, recover, and then come back when I have the energy to do so. I love that because you're giving yourself a range to work within. You're yeah. you're you're not saying I have to hit this exact benchmark. I have to hit this exact thing. You're giving yourself a lot more compassion and a lot more space to be human, you know, to to be exist in this spectrum that's bigger. And I like how you have that bottom like this is my bottom. I ha I have to do this bottom. I, I do right. I do love that. And <clears throat> I've written 9 books and I can tell you all of them it will bring out a different part of you as a writer. So hmm. You're going to have a book. One day you'll write it. It'll take you two weeks, two months. You'll be, <laughs> you'll be completely done with it. And then you'll have one that will take you two years, three years. You'll have two months on, two months off. You know, that's just the ebb and flow of the book because, and I'm sure you're probably learning this, is as you begin to write a book, you grow with the topic. You grow with yeah, it as you're, you're writing it. And it's so interesting because you go into it knowing exactly what you want to say. But as you begin to say it, you realize like, you know what? I, this actually needs to be said this way. And so then mm -hmm. it forces you to kind of change how you think in a way and change what you're thinking about. Or if it's more of a, a t artistic thing, you're, you're, you're growing your art. So I love the book writing process because it it makes you grow as a human being and it makes you root in the, the subject that you know, you're writing about at that time. So uh, on those days where you maybe don't feel like your best self, I hope you can just find <laughs> compassion for yourself. Right. Because that's part, of, that's part of the work as an author. It's just some days you get 4,000 words. You know, like I was reading uh, Stephen King's book on writing where he mm -hmm. talks about his writing process. And he says that he sits down at his desk every day at nine o'clock. And then he says that he goes for a walk in the afternoon around one or two and that Monday through Friday, this is his routine. And for me, that would never work. That will <laughs> never, ever work. Being yeah. at my desk every single day at nine o'clock, it will never work. Now for him, it's made him probably the most prolific author of all time. And that works for him. But for me, I need so much more. I need 
I need walks. I need the beach. I need to have these random moments with my son. I need to have random conversations like this to like learn and think. And that all helps me become a better writer. Yeah. So tell me about your book. Uh, where are you at with the process? What's the what's the title, uh, the working title? What are you hoping to do with the book? Yeah, so the book's uh, current title is Refocus, and then the subtitle is uh, Practical Guide to ADHD. And I basically, I want, the goal for the book is to be that first resource for someone to read when they find out they might have ADHD. Like the book that I wish existed back when I first found out that I had it. Because uh, there's just so much. There's a, there are a lot of great books out there, but I feel like some of them. Uh, there's uh, Rus- Dr. Russell Barkley, who's one of the like leading experts in ADHD, and his his stuff is really great. But it's also like really academic. So if you're not mm-hmm. sort of academic leaning, then you are not going to find interest in that book. Like I I've enjoyed his stuff because there's a lot to learn in it, but it's not the sort of thing that you can just hand to anybody and say, "Hey, read this. You're going to love it." Uh, because a lot of people will not love it. And so I've, I've, the goal is to be that sort of book that you can hand to anyone that's just saying like, hey, what is ADHD is more than I thought. I thought it was just, you know, distracted by squirrels or whatever. Like you could hand them this book and that would be a great starting point. So that's sort of the goal with the book. And kind of like you said before, it's changed a lot since I've been writing it. Like I had this idea of what I thought it was going to be when I started and it's evolved a lot in that process. Uh, one of the things I'm doing that's kind of wild is I'm built. I'm writing it in public, so I have sort of a public page with all my current topics that I'm planning to write about listed, and I have a form so people can just submit a new topic of like, "Hey, you should write about this. This is a really important aspect of ADHD," and I'm using that kind of rough table of contents to write the book. So I started with you know the a certain amount of topics that I thought I wanted to cover. And it's probably doubled since then with things Mm. that people have added. And yeah, and obviously I'm kind of balancing because I want the book to be short because I know most ADHD people are probably similar to me and read like the first 30% of books and then put it down and never pick it up again. So I want this to be the kind of book that you don't do that with. So my rough... You know, my rough goal is to have be a, like around 120 pages or something like that in very short chapters so that it's really easy to feel like when you're reading it, you're making progress and you're learning every little chapter. Um, that's sort of been the goal. And it's been going really well. Like I said, I got kind of into a good streak the last few weeks and I'm going to be doing alpha reading really soon. So I'm going to send out copies to people to get sort of some of that early feedback and see feedback, what yeah, sections yeah. are working, what's not working, where can I evolve things and get, improve them. And yeah, it's it's been a wild process. I'm really excited to be able to finally, you know, get to that finish line. And when someone asks me like, hey, where do I learn more about ADHD? Have this resource. I can just say, hey, this is the book. This 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 will get you all the inf- like all that upfront information you need to know. And then you can resources you can look into to learn more if you need to. But there's just so many so many aspects. I mean, we've covered... I feel like we've only covered like a handful of them today because there's so much. There's like the uh, time distortion where people with ADHD don't see time the same way. There's perfectionism. There's emotional dysregulation and rejection-sensitive dysphoria, which are huge, big things. Um, and yeah, so 
I'm rambling a little bit here because I'm so excited. I'm really looking forward to uh, getting this book out. Yeah. No, it's, it's not a ramble. This, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to bring you on the podcast multiple times because this topic is so massive. It's so big. I want to, I personally want to grow with you as you grow and as you continue to just keep rooting in the content as the book comes out. Um, because I personally, like I say, I want to learn. And I know that there's people listening, one, who have ADHD and don't know it. And then mm-hmm. two, who have family members, friends, and partners who have ADHD and don't know it. And so we need the information. We need the support, you know? And so uh, when do you expect the book to be out? It's hard to estimate. My goal is sometime this year, late this year, okay. probably. That's that's my goal. I know I've got like a bunch of checkpoints that need to happen leading up to it. But I at the beginning of the year, I was like, oh man, I don't know if that's going to happen. But now that I've kind of gotten on a roll, now it feels like, okay, that's possible. Like, Ideally, fall 2022 would be, that's sort of my general loose goal right now. We'll see how things go, but that's, yeah, yeah that's my yeah. target. <laughs> well, any, any way I could support you, you let me know, man. I Text appreciate call. that. Thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm right there. Like I said, I've written nine books and um, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> I wish I could sit here and say, oh yeah, it's easy to do. No, it's definitely <laughs> challenging. It's hard. But I also think that that's that difficulty for the creator I think that makes the product better on the other end because that means you care. That means you're investing. That means you're trying. It's just like an athlete who's showing up to practice. Like you're trying. Practice should be hard. You're trying Mm -hmm. to get better. You're trying to get the plays right. So when you do get in the games, you have the best, you know, performance. You have the you have the best show. Right. So Mm -hmm. uh you get the best chef in the world. All right. And they're gonna make you a meal. And that meal, you get your appetizer. You get your main course and you get whatever dessert dessert and whatever beverage you want. Uh, from start to finish, what what is it looking like for you? <laughs> oh man. Um, let's see. Appetizer for me, it's gotta be, it's gotta be something deep fried with cheese. I am a sucker for that sort of stuff, man. Uh, like I was we were at a restaurant the other day and I didn't get it, but I kept thinking about it, just like it was deep fried macaroni and cheese, like the little macaroni mm. and cheese balls. Oh my gosh. That's so bad for you, uh, but with the little crunch, that yes. as soon as the, oh, that, that oh, texture, so oh man, yeah, <laughs> yeah. For the main main course, I love me some steak. So, got to get some steak and mashed potatoes. That is my jam right there. And to drink, I love uh, root beer. Is like my poison. I love root beer. So, a really really nice root beer would probably be my go to drink. And then for dessert. Uh, there's a, have you heard of a pizuki? No, I've never heard of that. So it's, it's a combination of pizza and cookie, but it basically, it's like a small little, like a small little pan. So it's like a giant cookie, like, you know, yay big. And then it's hot. So it's like cooked right there and it's still hot and kind of doughy. And then you put ice cream on top and it is so good. It, Cause it, Where do the, you get that from? Oh, there's, there's restaurants that have it and, or you can make it at home, but yeah, the pizuki is so good. That's that's my go-to. I love it. When you say pizza and cookie, I'm I'm like, yeah, sign me up. Like you don't even have to convince me. Just take my money. Like I'm right, there. right. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then the final question I have for you is this: You get three musicians from your catalog. It doesn't it doesn't have to be best selling. It doesn't have none of that. It's three musicians that mean a lot to you, and those are the only three musicians you can listen to. All right. <laughs> which which three musicians will, will they be? It could be a group. It could be a solo. Any era, they could be dead or alive. Right, right. Oh, man. Let's see. 
Um, I'm, I'm narrowing it down. Give me, give me a moment. <laughs> um, so one I've since I, I, they need more music, but it's gotta be the postal service. That is, that album is still one of my favorites of all time. I could listen to that at any point. Postal service is my jam. Um, another one would be churches. I love churches. Every album, their latest one is really, really good. Yeah. Just churches, postal service. That would be, that would probably be, those would be my two go-tos to jam. And then just cause I couldn't imagine not being able to listen to them. My third one's gotta be weird Al. Cause I love me some weird Al. <laughs> gotta weird break up the Al. monotony from once in a while, bring in some levity to the situation. I feel Rock like some weird Al. I just saw something about him. Like he has a, a documentary that's being made about him or a movie that's being made about him. Yeah, you know? yeah. They're making a documentary with um oh, what's his name? The actor that played Harry Potter. Oh, I can't remember. Uh, oh, I can't Radcliffe. Is it Daniel Radcliffe? Yeah, Daniel Radcliffe, who's awesome. He's I yeah. love like his other roles that he's done. I don't know if you've seen Swiss Army Man, is one of the weirdest movies you'll ever see, but he's fantastic in it. Uh, yeah, so I'm really excited to see what uh, Daniel does with Weird Al in that that movie. Yeah, no, I think it'd be great for, for the reason that they got a great actor. And yeah. Weird Al is one of those people that, you know, he has such a stage performance energy, right? But it's like, who is he really? Like, what is he like mm. really? And so right. I'm curious to see if the documentary can go into that or the movie can go into that and kind of show us how he came into that en energy. Because a lot of the times, people who are comedians are the ones who have the most pain. They have the most suffering. Right. And so mm. I'm wondering to know a little bit more about his backstory and how he how he came about. Yeah, for for sure. Me too. He's he's just been such a consistent presence for so long that, yeah, I, I'd love to hear more about kind of his story, what is what has led to that. And yeah, and I think Daniel's going to do an awesome job with it. And the final thing I want to ask for you today is this. For the people listening to this podcast who have ADHD, who now feel seen and heard because of your presence, because of your your energy and the people who didn't know, you know, maybe they were, they were hiding a little bit. Maybe mm. this invitation is bringing them out a little bit more to just investigate. Uh, what's, what's your final closing message for those people and for those people who have those people in their community? Yeah. I think a big part of what we talked earlier with, we were talking about shame and self-esteem and man, I know what it's like. Like when you, you've heard, if you've lived with ADHD, you've heard all your authority, all your authority figures when you're growing up, your teachers, your parents, they're all sort of telling you like, why are you so lazy? Why are you stupid? Why are you crazy? Why are you spacey? Like you never pay attention. You aren't living up to your potential. There's just like every report card I ever got was my teacher said, like not living up to potential. And I never knew what to do about that. Like I was like, I had all these great intentions and I was trying to be a good student, a good kid. Like I wanted to please these people and I, there was just nothing I could do that I knew how to control. And so I, I feel like finding out about ADHD has really helped me to reclaim kind of that story and reclaim knowing like all that pain I felt. I mean, I don't blame these people because they didn't know either. Like, especially back, you know, this is, I was growing up in the eighties and nineties. No one really knew ADHD well back then. There was this stereotype that they knew and that's, that was it. 
And so I don't blame these people, but I've sort of reclaimed like, hey, those that pain that I felt there was just misunderstanding. And now I can kind of take that energy and try to to turn it the other way around so I can help other people to realize because there's people still living with that. And I knew that's where I was five years ago where before I was diagnosed. I heard this I heard those stories growing up and even like as an adult with different jobs and bosses. And I just felt that pain until finally there was understanding. And it wasn't like, oh, hey, I found the excuse to explain this behavior. It wasn't the excuse. It was the explanation of like, this is why those labels never felt right. I accepted them because I didn't know what else to do. But those labels didn't really define me. And finding out about ADHD has really helped me to redefine those labels. And I... Truly, I think there's so many people out there with ADHD that don't know that are suffering and blaming themselves and not knowing what to do about it. And once you, you know, if you have ADHD and you find out about it, you can really start to reclaim that label and reclaim what is really going on and learn about how your brain really works so that you can work with it rather than fighting against it. 